Hello, I'm Jack Cush with the Baylor Research Institute. Today we're going to talk about adult stills disease. I'm going to start off talking about the history of adult stills disease. I figure what better way to start than with a patient. This is a patient I actually saw in 1983. TR is a 23-year-old white female admitted to the hospital with a five-day history of fever, rash, and a sore throat. She complained of daily or sometimes twice daily fevers up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The fever was always preceded by the chills. She had a red rash over her trunk, neck, and arms. She complained of diffuse myalgias, wrist pain, and three days of abdominal pain and diarrhea. Her sore throat had been going on for two weeks. She had gone to her primary care doctor who gave her penicillin, but she developed a rash and the penicillin was discontinued. When you looked into her past medical history, she had a history of rheumatic fever at age nine and numerous hospitalizations between the ages of nine and 12 for several diagnoses, including rheumatic fever, arthritis, FUO, fever of unknown origin, and hepatitis. The review of systems was otherwise negative. During her hospitalization, she had lymphadenopathy, an enlarged spleen, uh, hepatomegaly, pleuritis, and pericarditis. Her white count rose from 20,000 to 40,000, and she had elevated liver enzymes. On the right, you can see that she had fusion of her wrists. So this is a gal who actually had juvenile onset systemic disease or uh, systemic onset juvenile arthritis, soja, but now it was recurring as an adult and we call that adult stills disease. You can see here her fever pattern with spiking fevers going on initially and then once she started on steroids um, that the fevers became less frequent and less prominent. So this is defined as a systemic inflammatory disorder that affects kids and young adults usually up to the age of 35. It is um, notable for its quotidian fevers, daily spiking fevers, an evanescent rash, arthritis, sore throat that starts at the beginning of the condi condition, serositis, organomegaly, leukocytosis, and an exuberant acute phase response. There are no diagnostic tests or serologic tests for this condition, hence it is a diagnosis of exclusion and hence it is a syndrome. It is a, a condition that is um, notable for its systemic exacerbations with high fevers uh, and then, or chronic arthritis, with, often with long disease-free intervals. When you compare this condition in the adults to that seen in the children, you can see that they're pretty much the same. This is a listing of the variants of juvenile arthritis that are seen, and on the bottom is the systemic variant. This makes up 20% of all children with the onset of arthritis. You can see it usually happens between the ages of five and 16 years. Males and females are equally affected. They tend to be ANA and rheumatoid factor negative, and they have the exact same manifestations as that seen in the adults with fevers and rashes, serositis, organomegaly, high white count sed rates, CRPs, ferritins, and a chronic anemia. When you compare adults to the systemic onset JIAs as shown in this slide, you can see that they pretty much have the exact same manifestations across the board. Um, 90 plus percent have the spiking fevers. 90 plus percent will have the evanescent rashes. 90 plus percent will have the arthritis, which is usually a polyarthritis. They may, the prodromal sore throat is something that distinguishes the two. Very common in adults, about 70, 75 percent, whereas in kids, it's only about 15 percent. As you can see, even on the bottom, the genetics are roughly the same. The um, bad part about this condition is it does run the risk of developing a chronic severe arthritis, which can be erosive and damaging in up to one-third of cases. 
This is George F. Still. This is a picture of him, uh, and, and, and this condition bears his name. Uh, it's because in the late uh, 1800s, George F. Still, who was working in England at the time, uh, described a set of children who had this condition, many of whom had systemic features, including the, the fever, the lymphadenopathy, the anemia, uh, and whatnot. He did not describe the rash. Um, and again, a lot of what was considered in his 22 ki kids was that of just simple juvenile arthritis of the palsy and polyarticular type. But a subset of those 22 actually had this systemic variant that now bears his name. The history of this condition actually really starts in adults in 1971 by this seminal paper from Eric Bywaters in Annals of Rheumatic Disease, wherein he describes um, 14 um, females with this condition, um, and they had um, what was later known to be adult onset Stills disease. But even before 1971, there actually have been numerous reports of Stills disease in the literature. Going back to 1896, Vanatine and Chauffard actually described patients with a systemic onset to their rheumatoid arthritis, meaning they had fevers and lymphadenopathy and splenomegaly and, 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 um, and, and anemia, and that's what distinguished them. Again, in 1897, George Still describes 22 patients with Still's disease in kids, um, and a subset of those had the systemic variant. In 1933, there were reports in the literature of the Still's rash, this evanescent rash being described for the first time, and then Otto Mulkey in a Scandinavian journal of rheumatology describes Stills disease in adults also in 1933. If you look in the French literature in 1943, they had this, the, a similar syndrome that was called subsepsis hyperallergica or the Whistler-Fanconi syndrome. And these are patients who really also have Stills disease. But again, the condition takes off in 1971 with Bywater's description of 14 females with an adult onset of this disease. And then 1973, uh, Joseph Bujak and colleagues at the NIH described 10 males, all young, all with the same disease uh, and their and systemic manifestations. I think the next big benchmark was in 1976, Tom Metzger and Wallace Christie described the association of carpal ankylosis with Stills disease. That's a brief history of this condition. You can see by the publication reports shown here that there was very little in 1971 and 1975, one or two pay, uh, reports a year. Now in 2012, we're seeing an, on average about 60 to 70 new reports of adult Stills disease, and a much greater number if you talk about Stills disease in general that includes children. So this has become a very popular condition. It's a common test question on medical board exams. Um, it always is brought up in any patient who may have fever uh, and arthritis, and the diagnosis is still uncertain. You can see from this uh, graph that there really is a worldwide distribution. This does not only affects males and females equally, this affects pretty much all races in all countries. So this could be considered almost in every corner of the United States. How common is this condition? That's shown here. You can see that in the top half, um, the number of uh, Stills disease cases per year is roughly one to two cases a year in most major medical centers um, that have been in, in the literature. In the bottom half, you can see the, re the percentages in which Stills disease makes up the proportion of patients with fever of unknown origin. In large cohorts, two to four hundred patients described with fever of unknown origin, what percentage of those actually have Stills disease? You can see it's consistently somewhere around five to six percent in many of these reports, which makes it the number one autoimmune cause for fever of unknown origin. 
In fact, if you now look at the epidemiology of this condition, this is a rare, rare, rare condition with an event rate of somewhere between of around 0.16 uh, cases per 100,000 patient years. Uh, that means that in Dallas, Texas, where I live, we might expect to see around 19 cases per year. Um, so it's not that rare. It will occur in most major medical centers about one a year in the least. To end, we could say that this is a, a leading autoimmune cause of fever of unknown origin. It does cause considerable morbidity. Um, uh, it generally is not a condition that kills people. It just causes a lot of discomfort, a lot of disability. There is a large need for very aggressive therapies, including high-dose steroids. Um, the management of the disease usually involves the use of immunosuppressive and biologic agents. It is costly. It is a diagnostic challenge. Um, and often the treatment is not that clear to those who don't see many of these patients. These patients, will, over time, will require frequent hospitalizations to diagnose their condition or to manage their fevers. Um, weight loss can be a problem. It can be complicated by the macrophage activation syndrome, a very serious complication. And again, somewhere around a third of the patients will develop a severe erosive, if not deforming, arthritis. Hence, this can be a real diagnostic challenge. In our next segment, we'll talk about the manifestations of Still's disease. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with the Baylor Research Institute talking about adult onset Still's disease. In this segment, I'm going to talk about the manifestations of this condition and show you some pictures. Um, to review, adult Still's disease is a systemic inflammatory disorder that typically affects young adults, usually before the age of 35. It has quotidian or spiking fevers, usually greater than 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees centigrade, evanescent rashes, a polyarthritis, a prodromal sore throat, pleuritis, pericarditis, pneumonitis, hepatosplenomegaly, a leukocytosis, and very high uh, rate CRPs and ferritin levels. There is no diagnostic test, however, and hence this can be a diagnosis of exclusion, and hence it is a syndrome. Um, its condition is, over time, is marked by either systemic flares of fever, uh, rash, and arthritis, or once the systemic features die down, there can be a chronic arthritis that will ensue in a third of patients. There's often long disease-free intervals in these patients. So if we look at who gets this condition, we can see that this is a condition of young adults. 76% will have the onset of their condition before the age of 35, half of these being males and females. The condition after the age of 50 is really quite unusual. Less than 9% of people having the onset of this condition after age 50. There have been cases reported as late as 84 years of old being an age of onset. But the, again, the older the patient, the less likely you should be considering Still's disease. Again, it is the quotidian fever that really stands out. The fevers are very high. They're very dis, de debilitating to the patients. They tend to occur late at night or late in the afternoon, and they recur, recur like clockwork, meaning it happens almost at the same time every day, almost to the minute. And the, the syndrome begins with shaking chills that will last for up to an hour or two followed by a high fever spike that can last up to two, three, four hours. And then as they defervesce, they'll have drenching sweats. All this will happen in the middle of the night while the patient's often in the hospital or at home. And then on rounds in the morning, if the doctor sees the patient at 7 a.m., they look fine and their temperatures are normal because they often will have changed their sheets and showered and whatnot. But again, it is this reproducibility of the high spiking fever that occurs daily, often with a return to baseline or normal, that makes this distinctive. Again, I'm showing here the quotidian pattern where it goes up to 104 and then returns to normal uh, late in the day every day. Uh, if you have a double quotidian, you have the twice daily spike usually occurring at Q12 hour intervals. 
There are other things that give you high fevers in, in rheumatology that would include not only Stills disease, but septic arthritis, opportunistic infections, polymyalgia rheumatica, and even vasculitis. Low-grade fevers are much more common in the rheumatic conditions, and lupus, uh, early-onset rheumatoid arthritis, even gout or vasculitis. Usually the fevers are low-grade and don't have the same periodicity or regularity to the fevers that you see in Stills disease. So again, here you're seeing the, uh, the fever pattern of someone with systemic onset juvenile arthritis where you have twice daily spikes um, that later becomes once daily spikes. Again, it's a double quotidian or a single quotidian fever. The next part of the triad, the triad being quotidian fevers and evanescent rash and polyarthritis, the second part of the triad is the rheumatoid or Stills rash or JRA rash as it has been call, called. It is characteristically evanescent. It comes and goes and will come out, especially with fever. My definition of evanescent means it changes more or less day to day or over a few days. It is usually salmon pink. It's faint. Um, it's usually not bright red or violaceous, but it tends to be faint and macular papular with areas of confluence. It likes to affect the trunk, neck, and extensor surfaces of the extremities. It is very, very rare in the palms, soles, or face. It has associated features of dermatographism and Kebner phenomenon. Dermatographism is an exaggerated wheel and flare at sites of, of scratching or trauma. Kebnerization is the reproduction of isomorphic lesions at former sites of trauma where the person has been scratching themselves, the rash will come out. Here's an example of a rash in um, a middle-aged woman where it's on her neck. You can see some of it has a linear character characteristic suggesting she's been scratching herself, but it's sort of a faint um, red rash that, uh, that does change day to day. This is also someone with a faint red rash on their chest um, due to Stills disease. Next you see a woman again with the same pattern. Again, sort of the V-neck anterior chest is a typical spot, a typical spot for this rash. Um, it's also the same kind of rash one gets with dermatomyositis, and one needs to look for features of myositis or muscle weakness or elevated CPKs in patients who may present with rashes like this. But with high fevers and this sort of rash and a change from day to day, that makes it really quite distinctive. And here's a, a young adolescent who actually has a protuberant abdomen. Uh, and a linear streaky rash along the side. This is Kebnerization where the rash has occurred in a spot where the person has been scratching themselves. So you're seeing the organomegaly of Stills disease, the rash, and the Kebnerization on the slide. So next is the polyarthritis, the last part of the triad. Again, monoarthritis, oligoarthritis really shouldn't occur. It should be sort of more or less a symmetric polyarthritis. It likes to affect small and large joints. It may be accompanied by myalgias, um, just joint pain without swelling, um, or intermittent arthritis in a few people. 50% um, of people will have neck pain. Um, synovial fluid can be withdrawn as often inflammatory. 50% uh, will have carpal ankylosis, maybe 15% will develop tarsal ankylosis or cervical ankylosis. But erosive arthritis is the worrisome feature of this condition. It'll happen between in 20 to 40% or an average about one-third of patients. Often those people will be HLA-DR4 positive, and meaning that that's a, a gene that's involved in disease expression of their arthritis. Rare features would include tenosynovitis, periostitis, um, micrognathia, even myositis has been described in a few patients. But the hallmark articular feature of Stills disease is the carpal ankylosis. 
This is a patient from the University of Pittsburgh who starts out on the left with a normal carpus and normal intercarpal spaces, but over the course of seven months develop a hazy, uh, in, indistinct uh, articular margins with those joint um, uh, dark spots the, between the uh, joints um, in the capitate or pericapitate distribution being come, uh, showing the effusion that occurs within the wrist of patients with active disease. So Metzger and Christie described in 1976 um, carpal ankylosis, meaning fusion of the wrist that a tends to occur in a pericapitate distribution. You see the capitate fuses to the hamate, the lunate, the, the metacarpals two and three, and even to the trapezoid bone, uh, and, and that sort of makes that very distinctive. This rarely happens in conditions like psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, is much more common in Stills disease. You can also get fusion of the ankle and the tarsal bones, but also in the posterior elements or the zygoapophyseal joints of the cervical spine. Often what drives a patient to see the, the doctor is not the triad features as much as the constitutional features. Again, 75, 70% will have a prodromal sore throat, but often in addition to their fevers, they will feel very bad, have horrible fatigue, they'll lose weight rapidly, they'll have myalgias that'll be in their upper and lower extremities and large muscle groups, they will feel sick, nauseous, and sometimes have vomiting, headaches, um, malaise, fatigue, and stiffness will often predominate early in the, in the inflammatory feature, uh, systemic uh, phase of the disease. Um, as the disease progresses, you'll get involvement of the reticuloendothelial system. That would include generalized lymphadenopathy that occurs in up to two-thirds of patients. But it is the splenomegaly and hepatomegaly that occurs in 40% of individuals that is most worrisome. This is often paralleled by an elevation of hepatic enzymes uh, in 70% of in individuals. The hepatic enzyme elevation can be both a cholestatic or hepatocellular picture. Um, so either one seems to work with this condition. Uncommon but worrisome is chronic liver disease. Uh, hepatic failure has been described, especially in people who are taking nonsteroidals or salicylates, and even salicylate hepatotoxicity has been described in patients with Stills disease. Uh, pleural, pericardial, and pneumonic involvement is not uncommon. It occurs up to 40% of individuals. Sorry. Sorry. So pleural, pericardial, and even mnemonic involvement is not uncommon in Stills disease. It occurs up to 40% of individuals with pericarditis, pleuritis, and even bilateral pneumonitis with hypoxia. So this is a patient of mine who has both pleural involvement, pericardial involvement, and pneumonitis. You can see that here is manifest as cardiomegaly with pericarditis pleuritis, and mnemonic infiltrates bilaterally with hypoxia. These features are seen in up to 40% of individuals with active Stills disease. This person also had cardiomegaly and an endomyocardial biopsy showing myocarditis on the bottom right-hand portion of the slide. So again, cardiopulmonary manifestations will occur in somewhere between 20 and 40% of individual individuals. The myocarditis is quite rare. There are a number of other uh, rare associations that have been described with this condition, and they're listed for you here. So those are the major clinical manifestations of Stills disease. In the next segment, we'll talk about the diagnosis and the use of laboratory in, uh, in diagnosing patients with Stills disease. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with the Baylor Research Institute, talking about adult onset Stills disease and its diagnosis. So this can be a challenge. Um, patients often present with a fever of unknown origin um, and a myriad of symptoms that are quite worrisome. JM is a 21-year-old Latin male admitted to the hospital with a two-week history of fever, chills, night sweats, and sore throat. 
He had myalgias, he was losing weight and had a loss of appetite. There was pleuritic chest pain and a non-productive cough. He quickly developed respiratory distress and had to be admitted to the ICU uh, and ultimately went on a respirator. He had diffuse lymphadenopathy. He had a maculopapular rash over his trunk, arms, and legs. Labs showed a white count as high as 62,000, a set rate of 48. He had an elevated AST and ALT that was four times normal, and he had negative tests for ANA and rheumatoid factor. Chest x-rays showed cardiomegaly, bilateral pleural effusions, an interstitial and alveolar infiltrate on both lung fields, and blood gas showed a uh, pH of 7.5 with a PO2 of 68 on room air. This clinical course was marked by problematic pleuritis, pericarditis. This required pericardial drainage and pleural drainage. Um, he ultimately went on to get a chest tube. He, because it was myocarditis, he had an endomyocardial biopsy, proving that he had a nonspecific inflammatory myocarditis. Once the systemic disease was controlled by high doses of steroids, he later went on to develop chronic severe erosive arthritis despite aggressive treatment at that time with gold and methotrexate, but within two years he had bilateral hip replacements. Later this, this gentleman died as, as a result of complications of steroid therapy. So again, this is a very severe case of someone with a systemic onset who develops later on into a chronic severe polyarthritis and then has complications related to his therapies. The diagnosis in him was not made early on. It was uh, problematic and a, 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 a significant challenge. Um, the key to the diagnosis is not just the recognition of the triad symptoms of, uh, of the fever, the rash, and the uh, polyarthritis, but also you, what labs can be used to support that. Here you can see that there are often negative tests for ANA and rheumatoid factor. 95% should be seronegative. Um, the white count should be high and often with a large left shift suggesting a very inflammatory disease. White counts have been as high, usually they're higher than 12,000 and they may be as high as 62,000 as seen in this patient. Um, the average patient tends to be uh, 12 to 20,000 uh, with a left shift. They quickly develop an anemia chronic disease, which by the way, as their hemoglobinomatocrit drops, so does their albumin, so does their weight. They all go together as this person has high fevers and uncontrolled systemic disease. Uh, hyperferritinemia often gets a lot of play in Stills disease, but recognize it is not as um, diagnostic as everyone believes it is, and it's not as sensitive as, as you would like it to be. It's found in up to 60% of patients with this condition, whereas other acute phase reactants, the CRP, the C-reactive protein, and the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, these are often either singly or both are very, very high and uh, further indicate the inflammatory nature of the condition. Here you can see the distribution of patients and their white count with the vast majority of people having a white count of less than 25,000. This is the distribution of the SED rate. You can see that 90% of people will have a SED rate greater than 50, and that 50% of people will have a SED rate greater than 90. Ferritin can be very, very high in Stills disease. It usually is very high in people with any inflammatory disorder, but usually 100 or 200 or whatnot. What is distinctive about Stills disease is when it does occur, it's not surprising to see a, a ferritin level of 20,000, of 15,000, something that's well above 2,000. Uh, and again, extremely high ferritin should lead one to consider other diagnoses as well, but also to worry about the onset of the hemophagocytic syndrome or the macrophage activation syndrome, which also has hyperferritinemia as a feature. On the right, you can see what happens to ferritin levels in kids with Stills disease once they receive effective treatment with steroids. 
Hyperferinemia can be seen as still, still disease, but you should think of iron overload states as well, polytransfusion, hemochromatosis, acute or chronic liver disease, and even cancer. I've probably seen more patients with hyperferritinemia due to neoplasia, sepsis, uh, and, and vasculitis than I have with Stills disease, but other conditions like sepsis, pancreatitis, the hemophagocytic syndrome should be considered when this is being seen. So how does one make the diagnosis of Stills disease? You can rely on uh, criteria. These are my criteria published in Bolton Rheumatic Diseases in 2000, wherein it, you can have major or minor. Uh, you get two points for a major criterion uh, or one point for the minor criterion. If you have 10 points, you're likely to have Stills disease. So the major criteria are the quotidian spiking fever is greater than 39 degrees centigrade, uh, uh, evanescent or Stills rash. The third, the simultaneous elevation of white count and sed rate or another acute phase reactant. Number four, um, a negative test for rheumatoid factor and ANA. And lastly, carpal ankylosis. If you had those five, you'd have 10 points and highly likely of having the Stills disease once you've excluded infection. However, for every one major one that you lack, you can must, you're going to need a minor one. And the minor ones include an onset age less than 35, um, polyarthritis, the prodromal sore throat, RES uh, or LFT elevation, RES meaning hepatosplenomegaly or generalized lymphadenopathy, the presence of pericarditis or pleuritis meaning serositis, and then cervical or tarsal ankylosis. Again, they're not that common, but when they are there, they're somewhat specific for this condition compared to others that might present in the same manner. Again, a six weeks of these features along with a point total gives you a likely diagnosis, a probable diagnosis. If, if this has been going on for more than six months, it's almost a, con a confirmation of diagnosis. There are other criteria. The criteria of Yamaguchi et al. published in Journal of Rheumatology in 1992 also goes along the same pattern, major criteria being fever greater than 39, arthralgia for more than two weeks, a stills rash, and a neutrophilic leukocytosis. Minor criteria are sore throat, hepatosplen uh, 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 lymphadenopathy or splenomegaly, hepatic dysfunction, and lastly, um, seronegativity for ANA and rheumatoid factor. You need to have five or more of the criteria, including two major, uh, and that also includes the exclusion of other neoplastic or infectious causes of that same presentation. The differential diagnosis here is wide. Uh, in the top left, I give you the conditions that are most often confused with Stills disease. That would include acute viral syndromes, dermatomyositis, reactive arthritis, Crohn's disease, leukemia or lymphoma at its onset, and then the hemophagocytic syndrome. But you can see that the differential is quite large, um, and it takes a, a skilled eye and often a number of different consultants to make sure it's not one of these other conditions. So there are other febrile disorders one should consider um, that give you these periodic fevers, and these are often called the auto-inflammatory syndromes or the periodic uh, fever syndromes. Uh, in adults, we're looking at familial Mediterranean fever, Muckle-Well syndrome, cyclic neutropenia, Schnitzler syndrome, the hemophagocytic syndrome. Rarely would lupus or polymyalgia rheumatica or giant cell arteritis actually give you a sort of periodic or daily fevers like this, but it could be in the mix along with Stills disease. Rare, rare, rare conditions seen in children and neonates would include the Nomad and Sinca syndrome, the familial cold auto-inflammatory syndrome, TRAPS that, uh, uh, um, the, or Hibernian fever, uh, hyper-IgD syndrome, pa the FAPA syndrome, Blau syndrome, and PAPA syndromes. These are all very rare conditions occurring in children's. So what if it's not Stills disease? This can be a real challenge. Um, often time will tell you if it's Stills disease, because if it is, it'll last. I tell most of my patients Stills disease will last either eight months or eight years and then go into remission spontaneously. 
there are a lot of patients who have acute febrile onsets and often are not going to be adequately diagnosed because they'll resolve in three weeks or three months. And is that a viral syndrome or another syndrome? It's not known. So again, of limited duration, one has to think of other conditions, especially when the fever is not as high as what you see of 104, 105, or doesn't have the typical quotidian pattern, meaning it has an ba elevated baseline or doesn't truly occur Q12 or Q24 hours. When the arthritis is either absent or when there's a monarthritis, you should really um, doubt the diagnosis of Stills disease. The rash needs to be typical. If it's a fixed rash and it's not changing, or if it involves the face, hands, or palms and soles, um, you need to reconsider. Other atypical features would include an isolated lymphadenopathy, think lymphoma and leukemia, um, many blasts on CBC, think of lymphoma and leukemia, and weakness, you should think of myositis. Again, the treatment for such individuals should be symptomatic, and time will tell you whether they truly have Stills disease or not. So it's important to look for the key elements of this disease, the triad features, the laboratory features, and then to use criteria wisely. Be cautious when patients have atypical presentations or widespread pain, such as fibromyalgia, um, that might confound the diagnosis. Hello, I'm Jack Cush with the Baylor Research Institute. I'm going to talk to you about the management of patients who have adult onset Stills disease. It's important to distinguish patients um, who may have articular-only disease from those who are in the active systemic phase of the disease. So by systemic disease, I mean patients who have fever, rash, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, serositis, and very high sed rates in CRPs and anemia. Um, once all that dies down, which will happen in many patients, uh, you may be left with a chronic arthritis. This slide shows you uh, of the 21 patients that we followed at the University of Pittsburgh, when we looked at what happened to their arthritis over time, on the bottom, the patients who continue to have polyarticular disease, meaning they had a polyarticular onset, uh, 14 out of the 21, and then over the next six months after that, um, the number who had a polyarticular course were the ones who went on to have more functional disability, meaning more class two and class three disabilities. So again, identifying chronic arthritis uh, is very important because that's going to be treated very differently than the active systemic disease. This four panel picture shows you the patterns of still disease that will be seen, and that includes the monocyclic systemic onset. That's a person who has high uh, active systemic disease at the outset that lasts anywhere from eight months to eight years, um, and then they go into remission and they stay in remission. There, and that's, this is a minority population, somewhere less than 15%. There are those who have polycyclic systemic, meaning they have uh, systemic onset and maintenance of systemic active, active disease that goes into remission, but then recurs some two to 40 years later. The oldest uh, um, interval, uh, the, the longest interval um, on record is 40 years uh, from the literature. But that can happen every few years and be active for months to years and then again go into remission. Uh, again, this is a less about a third of individuals. The worrisome uh, part are the people who have chronic disease. And they can either have chronic arthritis on top of polycyclic systemic, shown in red in the bottom left, uh, systemic flares and then chronic blue arthritis um, uh, going forward, or they can just have the systemic onset followed by the chronic arthritis. It is that last qu bottom quarter panel of systemic onset and chronic arthritis that it can occur in up to one-third of individuals that can lead to severe disabling arthritis. 
So again, whether you have systemic disease or articular disease mandates the therapy you will get. Um, on the left, you can see the systemic features that would um, lean more towards uh, uh, aggressive anti-inflammatory therapies with steroids, uh, DMARDs, and biologics. That includes fever, rash, night sweats, um, uh, even polyarthritis, but again, there's a dominance of other features, the weight loss, sore throat, serositis, organomegaly, lymphadenopathy, high liver enzymes, very, very high acute phase reactants, and a high white count. Uh, however, when that all dies down, again, there is this chronic articular phase, really just manifests as an RA-like, rheumatoid arthritis-like um, polyarthritis. Those patients you treat just as if they have rheumatoid arthritis. So the initial therapy in active systemic disease, um, when you look at and review the literature, when aspirin is used, it works about a third of the time. This is mainly from children who've had this condition. Um, uh, there's, there's improvement, but it's short-lived. You have to use very, very high doses, 90 to 100 milligrams per kilogram, um, almost to the point of producing tinnitus in every person who takes this, and putting, their, obviously, their GI tract and kidneys at risk. Very few people use aspirin and manage this condition um, these days. Um, it used to be that you would try nonsteroidals in high anti-inflammatory doses. I'm talking 150 to 225 milligrams of indomethacin a day or 3,200 milligrams of ibuprofen in split doses. Again, that can control a lot of the features of the condition, not put them into remission, but can control the features in as much as 60% of individuals. But again, there still is a high risk of GI and renal uh, toxicities. Hence, there is a large reliance early on in, uh, in high-dose steroids. And uh, unfortunately, low-dose steroids does not work very well. 5, 10, 20 milligrams of prednisone is usually insufficient to control active uh, acute-onset systemic disease. You will need between 60 and 80 milligrams of prednisone, often in divided doses. This works in 85% of individuals and is certainly indicated in patients who have aggressive systemic disease with multi-organs involved, um, patients who have very uh, worrisome LFT elevations and hepato, um, uh, uh, hepatocellular involvement uh, with hepatomegaly um, and even splenomegaly, and patients who have life-threatening complications like pericardial tamponade or severe pneumonitis requiring intubation and or uh, respiratory support. Again, the it's important to make the diagnosis early on so you can know what to do after steroids. Um, and right now, one of the leading debates in the literature is whether or not one should use an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor as a way of making a diagnosis soon after using steroids as opposed to waiting and using a biologic only after they failed DMARD therapy and steroids. So the, the past approach was to use steroids or non-steroidals to initially manage patients with this uh, condition. Um, uh, again, as they uh, seem to have been, uh, been, had their diagnosis confirmed, um, the use of either uh, adjunctive methotrexate um, along with high-dose prednisone or to um, go to an IL-1 inhibitor has been a more recent development. And then uh, now I think the argument is whether what is going to be the role of IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitors uh, as these can be rapidly effective, can take patients with active systemic disease and put them into remission really quickly um, and without the need for background therapy with uh, uh, either methotrexate or even steroids. So that uh, we're going to need research to better define the role of those drugs in, in treating and defining the condition. You can see that IL-1, when it is produced, is produced in a circadian fashion. Um, the um, IL-1 levels are, are, are shown um, in, in this graph, and they sort of peak 
um, uh, early on in the evening, somewhere uh, uh, in the late evening, and then they go down as endogenous cortisol levels, shown here in orange, come up, which happens early in the morning. So that's why it's unusual for patients with a circadian cytokine syndrome to have a fever at 7 a.m. because the IL-1's at its lowest point, endogenous cortisol is, cortisol is at its highest point, and they're almost never febrile at 7 a.m. when they have Stills disease. The same can be shown here with IL-6 and its circadian distribution. You can see that the fever pattern follows the peak in IL-6, which occurs around 10 p.m. at night, uh, 8, to, 8 to 10 p.m., and then an hour or two later is the peak in fever. Again, this is often why the fevers are very high in, in this condition. So it is not known whether this is a predominant IL-1 or IL-6-driven disease, as both therapies seem to work. We do not have a diagnostic test. But there are a number of therapies that can be used to treat patients with active systemic disease. And these are shown for you here, along with their dosing and their relative cost. Methotrexate can be used to steroid spare individuals and with high doses, but methotrexate is certainly very easy to administer and can be uh, fairly cheap by comparison to the biologic agents. The biologic agents, including TNF inhibitors, the IL-1 inhibitors, can be used weekly or daily at a cost of about $20,000 a year. But again, these are now being challenged by newer IL-1 inhibitors, uh, canakinumab, rolanosept, and, and tocilizumab, shown as Ilaris, Arcalist, and Actemra, respectively, wherein the cost can vary from 20000 plus a year for Actemra. Uh, and if you're using Actemra in a very high dose, it can be as much as $40,000 a year. Um, or Ilaris and Arcalis, where the cost is anywhere from 114 to $270,000 a year. So you can see um, use, you don't want to make that jump to those new biologic therapies very lightly or very easily, especially with the cost as it is. So these drugs have been studied. Um, we can say a few things about the use of biologic therapies, therapies designed to specific, um, specifically inhibit certain cytokines. Um, the TNF inhibitors are very effective in managing the arthritis of, of, of Stills disease. Uh, however, they are not as effective in managing the systemic phase of the disease, which seems to be an IL-1 or IL-6 driven process. So I'll show you the data that comes from the studies that show that that works. Now using an IL-6 or an IL-1 inhibitor may be the way to go, and I'll show you that data as well. So this is a study that was published um, by Mike Weinblatt, Alan Gravelis, and colleagues looking at um, a cohort of uh, 12 patients who have active um, systemic disease, not systemic disease, but arthritis from Stills disease. And you can see when they use Enbrel, 25 milligrams twice a week, that they had very good ACR 20, 50, and 70 responses. However, you notice on the right that a number of patients had to discontinue the therapy. A number of the patients continue to have active systemic features, even though their arthritis was fairly well controlled, suggesting that TNF inhibition with either etanercept, infliximab, adalimumab, et cetera, is probably not prudent in patients with active systemic disease and should best be reserved for those with chronic severe polyarthritis. Active systemic disease should be treated with an IL-1 inhibitor after they have failed um, um, on uh, high-dose steroids with methotrexate. That's certainly a, a reasonable indication. We have three drugs that can be used. Kinneret, uh, the generic name is Anakinra. Uh, also, Arcalist and Canakinumab have been shown, but I showed you the cost of those agents. These are all inhibitors of IL-1. They're all rapidly effective um, and really uh, rapidly control the systemic features, the fever, the rash, the organomegaly. Those rapidly uh, improve when they go on these drugs. Again, it's unclear whether IL-1 inhibition would be helpful in managing the arthritis of Stills disease, and that needs to be further studied. 
The duration of therapy is unknown because, again, Still's disease is a condition that will spontaneously remit. Uh, it will last, uh, on average, six months to eight years. I say eight months to eight years. No one really knows how long it's going to last. I think you should worry about the diagnosis when it lasts a few weeks or less than three months. Uh, again, you should treat the patient until they have achieved clinical and chemical remission, meaning no swollen joints, no tender joints. They have a normal sed rate CRP and white count. And then when they've been in that phase, anywhere from 6 to 12 months, you can entertain the option of going off their current therapies, whether it be prednisone, methotrexate, or an IL-1 inhibitor. Interestingly, if you stop the IL-1 inhibitor, if you withdraw it, um, and they're on anakinra, they will flare usually within three days, no, certainly no more than, than uh, four or five days uh, if they still have active systemic disease. If you're on a longer-acting IL-1 inhibitor like Rolanocept, or um, the canakinumab, it may take many weeks before they will flare. But again, they may have active inflammatory disease that is well controlled by the therapy, and when you withdraw therapy, it'll come back. So to show you some of the benefits of these therapies, I'm going to show you how patients respond. This is the Stills Disease Inflammatory Index, uh, where you get one point each for the typical features of the condition, the fever, the rash, um, the sore throat, weight loss, serositis, hepatosplenomegaly, with or without lymphadenopathy, inflammatory polyarthritis, high white count, high sed rate, or high at liver enzymes. Again, if you have active disease, you'll have an SDII of greater than four points. If you're going to improve, you'll have a greater than 50% drop. If you're in remission, you'll pretty much go to zero. Uh, a flare would be a flare of greater than two points. Here you can see a patient of mine, BL, who's 55. He had sore throat, uh, chest pain from pleuritis, a fever of, of up to 104 degrees. He lost 65 pounds of weight rapidly. He had a white count of 50,000 and a ferritin of 28,000. You can see um, that uh, in orange, his SDII started out at eight. And when he went on treatment with prednisone, methotrexate, infliximab, he got somewhat better, but still had a lot of activity being around five or six. Uh, he went through a number of other therapies, and then he gets started on anakinra. And you see, once he goes on anakinra, the orange line, the SDII, drops pretty much down to zero. The green line, which is his white count, which was peaking at 50,000, also drops down to the normal range with effective therapy, in this case, with anakinra. Uh, I have three such patients shown here, 34, 53, and 26 years of age. You can see they all had high fevers and all had high white counts and sed rates. They all were not doing well on DMARD and steroid therapy. And then when they got put on anakinra, you can see that they've been on anakinra from 4 to 12 months when this was done. All their fevers went away, their rash went away, swollen joints disappeared, their sed rates and white counts normalized, their SDII went from 6 or 7 or 5 down to 0 in all cases. Again, the responses can be impressive. The same is seen with uh, tocilizumab. This is a, a published study with tocilizumab in systemic onset JIA or SOJA, kids with the same condition. And you can see the fever, the white count, the anemia, the uh, acute phase reactants, the number of swollen joints, all these rapidly improve when you use tocilizumab in the treatment of this juvenile uh, uh, subset of patients. Uh, if you use anakinra, you can have injection site reactions shown here in the abdomen, uh, or they can be more numerous as this person who had injection site reactions in the first 26 days of treatment. Um, again, these don't hurt. They're sometimes a little itchy, a little scaly. They do fade away and go away within two weeks. But the patient's doing well at this point. As soon as they go on therapy, they do well. And after the first month, injection site reactions will resolve. 
other side effects, in addition to injection site reactions, which occur uh, in about a third of patients, it might be the occurrence of non-serious infectious events, colds, URIs, bronchitis, flu, can happen in anyone in the population, as well as patients who are taking these drugs. These drugs do seem to give a slight increased risk of serious infectious events like pneumonia. However, there is no um, increased risk of strange infections, opportunistic infections, or tuberculosis who are in patients who are taking IL-1 inhibitors, and there does not seem to be a cancer risk associated with this drug. So in the future, um, we're probably going to get to the point of making a biologic diagnosis of this condition and not have to rely on um, clinical criteria such as the Yamaguchi or Cush criteria. And what we've been doing at the Baylor Research Institute is, is using microarrays, looking for a signature of gene expression that tells us which patients will have IL-1 responsive disease. And I'll show you examples of that. There are other researchers which have looked at uh, serum S100 levels, uh, which is a very um, uh, robust uh, acute phase reactant that will go up and is found in patients with this condition more so than others. Uh, and it may well be that we have to use um, therapeutic intervention to define the disease as well, but again, our response to IL-1 or IL-6 inhibition will be seen in patients, most patients with this condition. However, it's possible they, that patients with other conditions that will mimic this will also respond as those conditions may also be driven by IL-1 or IL-6 and hence their symptoms will get better when you use that therapy. So it is still not a diagnostic test. This is the modular analysis profile done by Virginia Pasquale and colleagues at the Baylor Research Institute where they can take a, a tube of blood, even as little as 200 microliters of blood, and, 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 and display for you um, um, gene expression, in this case, grouped into certain modules where you can have uh, genes for plasma cells or platelets or B cells or interferon genes all expressed together in each one of these little boxes. The pattern I show you right here is the pattern of someone who has systemic onset JIA, where you can see column two has um, uh, red dots indicating upward um, expression of the genes, in this case, genes for inflammation and platelets and, uh, and erythrocytes. The other red spot dots in, in, uh, row, in the column three are for the same inflammatory uh, set of genes, which includes, again, neutrophils, uh, platelets, and even anemia or the development of anemia. Um, and then column eight are T cells being downregulated in blue. But this pattern is seen in patients who have active systemic disease, active Stills disease. And here you can see two patients um, and what happens to them. The two uh, modular analyses are shown here where uh, on the left you can see someone who actually has um, um, the typical pattern of Stills disease and then they receive therapy with anakinra and you can see that it pretty much goes away, although it doesn't go to zero, it doesn't go to normal. We're not looking at all white boxes here. On the top, you can see the distance to health score, which is a genomic score for the number of abnormal genes also going down, and also the IL-1 genes going down in this one person who has active Stills disease. So this may be a useful uh, tool in the future. So in, in essence, we have a, a way of characterizing this condition. We, can, we have now effective therapies. Uh, what's good about this is that we now, this is a widely known condition. There are a lot of doctors who are familiar with this condition. Um, this is often a, a disease that's diagnosed by pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, uh, internists, and primary care doctors are aware of this condition and making the diagnosis often after they've excluded a cancer or a neoplasia in someone with an FUO. Um, and many rheumatologists actually manage patients. There, uh, and most rheumatologists I've met have anywhere from one to five patients in their practice and are able to manage patients with this condition. Uh, most major medical centers will see one to two new cases per year, uh, and it's often a grand rounds presentation or case conference as well. 
Uh, I think the interest, the publishing, the research has been encouraging. We're going to look at the utility of these new therapies in managing the condition and find better ways of actually diagnosing this condition in the future.